Hey everyone. Since we started this show, we realized that we've changed from our original fun with using the rules to break the game. And the more we chat about D&D 5th edition rules with all of our guests, we've realized that we love using the rules to make our games actually better. Now, instead of seeing loopholes for exploits, we see opportunities for creative solutions to challenges. And when some people hear rules as written, it does conjure images of rules lawyers and a denial to the rule of cool. Our hope is that by sharing how to apply, adapt, and improve the rules, you can make your games more fun for players and for DMs alike. So, thanks for joining us. Hey, this is Tony. Hi, this is Bethany. Hey, it's Rachel. Hey, it's Nick. Hi, it's Mike. So joining us today is Nick, who is currently playing an artificer in Rumble Squad, uh, which is why he is joining us for this to discuss that in the Eberron book. Rumble Squad. You can follow Nick <laughs> at Nick J. Ducharme on Twitter. We also have Mike here, who is a massive fan of Eberron and kind of the expert of our group in terms of Eberron and the history of it. So yes. you can also follow him at Valranoth on Twitter. Don't forget, you can find D&D Raw on all of your favorite podcatchers, and please follow us on Twitter at Rules is Written, or you can email me directly at dm at dndraw.com. You can even join us on our Discord. The link will be in the description, and if possible, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dndraw. And today we're going to be doing a review of the book Eberron Rising from the Last War. So we're going to be doing a high-level review of the book with items, monsters, and anything in particular that really caught our attention. The book provides everything players and dungeon masters need to play Dungeons & Dragons in Eberron. Now, this is a war-torn world filled with magic-fueled technology, airships, and lightning trains where noir-inspired mystery meets swashbuckling adventure. The Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron was also released previously on the DMs Guild. And we just wanted to note that there is some overlap in content. Uh, I think I can put a link to that in the description for people who are interested in comparing if you already own the Wayfarer's Guide. We do not, so it was less of a concern for us, but there is some additional content that's only in this particular book. This book actually builds on the Unearthed Arcana released for the various classes and items. Okay, so I guess it might be worth going into kind of what our background is with Eberron. Mine was nothing until I met Mike, who was like, I have books. I give you books. You read books. We discuss. <laughs> <laughs> and you only read two of them, right? I read two of them and I skimmed two others, meaning I looked at the pictures and read things that looked particularly interesting to me. So, yes. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unspoken judgment. <laughs> Why didn't you memorize these books? <laughs> There's a lot there. I mean, you got you got the highlights from the Player's Guide to Eberron and the Five Nations, and that's fair. It's a 3.5 setting, so there's like 15 books. So for the rest of us, though, uh, experience with Eberron would be nothing, I think. Is that accurate for everyone else? To be fair, I learned more about Eberron after we met Mike, and then you told me about <laughs> what you read. <laughs> so we only pass it like secondhand, thirdhand. It's like an oral tradition <laughs> in our group. <laughs> I think I saw the word Eberron somewhere once in the player's handbook. So I have Eberron experience. That's how it works, right? Uh, on your resume, it would say familiar with Eberron? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it would be the last one listed. I've heard the term, the Eberron. I'm more experienced with playing in a short game and then running it longer. But I mean, once I start running a setting, it kind of 
changes. And we'll get into that later. Yeah. So the book kind of opens with a summary of the world. I kind of reviewed this and added things that stood out to me after reviewing it because I did review the the new book. And I put as my tagline, Pulp Adventure with Noir Intrigue, as what I understood the setting to be in five words. So essentially, I think the point was, it's a world that needs heroes, but the stories don't always end happily because noir. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Things are often going sideways all the time, which I'm here for. I do love the drama. Yes. What? No. Uh, one of the things I thought would be interesting for people who are not familiar with other settings besides like the standard D&D 5e Forgotten Realms is that Eberron is like has a completely different driving force than those settings. It's not just this like typical high fantasy world, but it's more like about having regular things like jobs and societal connections and less politics. about like politics uh you know intrigue than it is about just being like i've been divinely inspired to go forth and do good which is not bad but less appropriate in the setting i would so say so less by the power of yadumi <laughs> <laughs> and Aww. more like my boss sent me here to solve a problem. <laughs> uh, I'm here on assignment. I drew the short stick. Now I am here to to take care of whatever the thing is. Yes. I also noted that something I like, uh, you need to choose your allies carefully because a large portion of the world is about who people are and who they work for. And you can really screw up if you are trusting the wrong people, which I love and I think is not unlike some things we've had in Tony's game where it's like, yes, choose a side of the five sides. <laughs> it's not just a good versus evil sort of scenario. So I noted some of these were churches, psionic spy organizations, arcane universities, dragons, and then just other factions, you know, but just the other. Just a whole bunch of other factions who have their Yeah, that motivations. doesn't even cover the houses. Well, I have that on my next on my list. So the Dragonbark houses, <laughs> I put as a whole foot of its own, that have these long dynasties that drive commerce and draw power from their arcane sigils. So this is like the most Mike thing I think I've read, where it's like, wow, they use magical power to make money. <laughs> what? <laughs> and use that to gain power and continue to have power. So there's a lot about the houses having a lot of control and rivaling like nations for their influence, uh, which I think is exciting and interesting. So magic is just a means to an end. Yes. I was going to say, like, you know, I don't know of any group whatsoever that would use magic to help make money off of anything. <laughs> do you, Nick? <laughs> No, um, but I do have um, some wares for sale if you're interested. <laughs> there's no shame in it. <laughs> uh, I also noted here that Evron is a world of adventure. So there's jungles and there's also like skyscrapers. And because there's magical transportation, you can be traversing this incredibly varied landscape with different types of challenges, everything from fighting like fiendish monsters to kind of like Mike mentioned before, I've been hired to like deliver some paperwork and just do a job. I'm like a I'm like a courier. <laughs> so what you're saying is it's not Florida. No, I I think there are Florida like places. <laughs> but it's not as we imagine everything is flat and swampy a little bit. Yeah. Flat, swampy, hot. <laughs> I think that's the shadow marshes. Like, that is just an entire section of the world. And the last thing I noted is that this kind of mastery of magic drives the setting. So it kind of seems like a futuristic setting, but it's not driven by technology insofar as mastering magic is a form of technological progress. Would you say that's accurate, Mike? Yes. So everything about the societies are shaped by it. Yeah, there are artificers, but everybody has at least a little bit of magic. But there are magic haves and have-nots. Yeah. 
So I just thought that was interesting. That's my take as someone who is new to the setting, having gotten most of it secondhand and then having reviewed this book. The one that stood out to me the most was like the mastery of magic drives it. I was like, ooh, because I knew it had more um, like it definitely had like the Warforged, which that's like the only encounter I've ever had with anything sort of Eberron. I played a Warforged for a very brief time in fourth edition. It was really cool. Like that's the only knowledge I had of like besides knowing there is the Eberron. Yeah. So to Mike's point, it's like magic is in, in a way mundane. Not that it's not valuable and powerful, but it's not like, wow, you could do magic? Cool. Reading your executive summary, I'm just kind of here for the those airships and the swashbuckling. That sounds like a good time. Oh, yeah. So, Mike, tell us about your experience. What <laughs> has brought you to this point? My initial experiences with it were playing a short-term game where it was just the vanilla setting, which was a lot. We stayed mostly in Sharn, and we kind of played it like an urban fantasy. It was fun, but I didn't get a lot of hands-on time with the setting. Then I started reading the source books more and fell in love with the setting. This was in 3.5? We played in 4th edition, but I found the resources for 4th edition lackluster when it came to building out the setting. And a friend of mine had the old 3.5 manual for the player's handbook, so I read that. And I said, oh, let me go find the rest of them. So I have seven of the 15 books right now. <laughs> oh, just seven of 15. Just the seven. The setting really clicked for me after I had internalized the books and my table ran it closer to a shadow run type game where it's a mission-based corporate espionage and noir and everything else. And it was just really fun. We called it Eberron and it was it was the best. To clarify, you're saying Eber run, right? Eber dash run. <laughs> Ah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Wordplay. <laughs> I, I like the setting because it just fills all those checkboxes for me. It has the pulp and the drama, like you mentioned before. The book calls it out earlier, saying, why just have a fight on an airship when you can have a fight on an airship that's about to crash? You just take the stakes and then elevate them to the point where you engage the players by the levels that you're working at. It also has that fantastic mundane stuff that you were hinting at before. There's magic everywhere, but it affects the world. It affects the politics. It affects the economy. It affects how people deal with it in their day to day. And I love that. It's got a rich social history is what you're saying beyond even like the political stuff that's enhanced by magic. Yeah. I mean, the politics are just take the hundred years war, tack on some magic. And that's what's happening with the Galifar crisis. Magic and robots, right? The aforementioned Warforged. <laughs> Why have a fantasy war when you can have a fantasy war with robots? Sentient robots that now that they now that the war's over don't know what to do. So they learn magic, right? I mean, some of them have magic. They all are magic. Well, I mean, some of them On can the cast side. <laughs> but aren't we all, Tony? <laughs> oh my goodness. Tony's like, forget the noir setting. This is a heartwarming tale of friendship and self-discovery. Mike's like, please no. So you you mentioned the Hundred Years' War, which is called The Last War. They're like, no more wars, this is it. <laughs> In our world, it was the Hundred Years' War, which I know you're a big fan of that period of history, Bethany. Yes. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know what the Hundred Years' War is, uh, find your nearest library and read about all the drama that actually happened. Or, or you can Google it. We will accept that as well. Yeah, it's fair. 
So anyway, Eberron has the last war, which uh, was this big magical conflict. It caused uh, House Caneth to create the Warforge to help fight in this war. Everything escalated up until a point called the Day of Mourning, where one of the countries, Sire, uh, the seat of power for Galifar, which was the big uniting power, just vanished. Like, the entire country is now covered in mist, and magic is kind of weird there. Weird in a bad way. Weird in a bad way. In like, a sad, terrible way. that You do not want to go there. <laughs> there's specters, there, magic is just wrong there. It's, it's a bad time, and nobody knows what happened. It's like a nuclear weapon going off and nobody knows who pulled the trigger. So it's sort of a Chernobyl situation. There's magic radiation? Yeah. The thing about the morn the day of mourning and sire is that they leave it open. The book doesn't tell you what happened. It says fill in the blank. Do whatever you want to with that part of the setting. You as DM can choose what happened or just leave it alone. Yeah. And that's another thing that if we go with noir, if we go with the idea that you're trying to get down into the nitty gritty and answer questions, this is one of the biggest questions there is. Who done it? <laughs> who done it? Who profits? I mean, we know who profits. It's the houses. With Galifar shattered, there's no one holding back the houses, and you have this like super like hyper capitalist society now. So, I, what are the houses? We haven't actually answered that question. What are they? The houses are dynasties. They're sort of like Japanese zaibatsus, where they're corporations that are passed within a family. The qualifier for this is something called a dragon mark, which is kind of like this magic tattoo that covers more of your body the more powerful it becomes, and it gifts you these different abilities. There are 12 of them, if you exclude the weirdos with aberrant dragon marks, which are mostly for super special people. But each of them has a specific niche, and they each control a part of the economy at this point. Uh, House Civis, the mark of scribing, controls communication. House Orion and House Lirandar have this competition going on for transportation. We could say House Civis is the Scriv house, right? Yeah, they control scribing. He would probably be there. Like, you can have non-dragon-marked people join the houses. You can marry into the family. You can work for them, but if you really want to advance, you need a dragon mark. Aberrant dragon marks can actually be put onto a person? Is that accurate? So aberrant dragon marks are aberrations that emerge on someone. You don't put it on someone. This is in case you have a PC who's like a half-elf but doesn't want one of the listed abilities. A dragon mark doesn't belong to any house. Also, aren't they painful, kind of? Or can be detrimental just as much as they are beneficial? Aberrant dragon marks are always destructive. They do come with a flaw. It's part of the, uh, the components of it in the book. Yeah. Aberrant dragon marks are not normal. They are dangerous and always destructive. Yeah, to your point, Tony, uh, it actually, one of the options for a flaw is that it causes incredible physical pain. Okay. That's a trade-off. <laughs> yeah. You're in constant pain while you have this. But why do that? Right. So House Orion is the one that controls the lightning rail, while House Lirandar's, well, they control the skies and the sea, because they control storms. They're sailors of the sea and the sky. Yes. And then there's just this competition between the two, because the lightning rail, you know, provides land transportation. But do you want to ship it by air or? By air, obviously. 
Why? House Orion could probably teleport it to you if you pay enough money. Can we talk about how shipping methods are now a major part of your fantasy world? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, I'm here for it. I'm just saying. <laughs> this, this also isn't even covering like the mark of healing. So in this book, they have a quote from a Jurasco healer. House Jurasco is the house that has the mark of healing, which is a bunch of halflings. And the quote is, what is the price of a life? Well, I've got a rate sheet over here, and I would be happily, happy to discuss it. Everything's for profit. Yeah. Everything is for profit because we're just recovering from a war. There's people who need healing badly, so why not profit from it? Yeah, there's a different version of ethics than in your standard fantasy world, which is very much tends towards your good versus evil <laughs> dichotomy. It's very gray. And then there's the interplay between the house politics and then actual national politics between the five nations. That healing um, ethics question really interests me and was something I was thinking about while I was playing Keldwin on Epic Endings. Just the whole question of, you have these spells that can bring people back to life or even cure diseases. How, how, would, how would that play like in a, in a morally gray kind of environment? I'm sorry, I need um, 400 gold and you have to give it to me in the next 50 seconds or your friend stays dead. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, in our modern day in the US, we pay for our healthcare, so it's not that different, but hopefully it's not as exploitive as do you really like your friend? Cough up the change. Though <laughs> <laughs> so it is a compelling storytelling, you know, motivation, it would give you some tough trade-offs potentially. Help motivate you make money so you can, you know, pay for healing and such things. And who has the right to be brought back to life, you know? The coin. <laughs> the coin dictates the right. Whoever has the biggest pile of money. Is yes, what they dictate the right to who gets brought back to life. Or heals diseases. Like imagine you have something chronic that can only be fixed by restoration. They can give it to you for a price. Oh, someone has some long-term madness. Well, a simple greater restoration could do the trick. But, you know, that always is uh, expensive. Hey, I, I don't feel so bad about that, Tony. In your Eddie Abyss campaign where madness was a mechanic... There was a point where I was like, is this person worth using one of our restorations on? Because it's like 50 gold 50 per use. 50 gold. We were in the Underdark. And there was one guy I was like, I don't know that it's worthwhile. I feel bad. <laughs> but like No, you held on to him for a while because you're like, we need to get some more money and then we can decide to <laughs> heal That's true. Actually, that time we didn't have the money, so we just towed him along <laughs> until we made enough money. But they needed to fund their spells accordingly. <laughs> yeah. I like anything that gives me some inventory management, so I'm I'm here for it. But I could go on and on about the houses. We could talk about House Galanda, who has a stranglehold on the hospitality industry and also acts as information brokers. Oh, so it's Disney. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Orlando. <laughs> Sorry. I do not mean to shade Disney. I mean, I do, but Disney is not harmed by me shading them as a company. No, not even. I was going to say, what they kind of deal with uh, in terms of the houses, they treat the houses and the marks, the dragon marks, as like a sub-race. It replaces certain sub-racial features when you take on these marks. They also give an option for if you don't pick uh, like a half-elf bill for a particular house, you can still get the dragon mark uh, with some changes. But I think the book basically attributes the dragon mark house as like a sub-race to a particular race. Which is accurate to the lore. Because they're hereditary. As you were saying yes. earlier. Well, I was going to say, we can jump into a little bit of the actual racial options. So as far as the races go, we now have changelings. Standard action disguise or alter self. Yeah, people who can just shift their appearance to, it has to be someone that they've seen, right? Correct. 
And like you have your limbs in the same configuration, I think is another restriction. So if you have two arms, you can't transform into something that has six. Right. So you still change into a humanoid. Well, the interesting thing is you duplicate their voice too. Everything's duplicated. The only thing that it says is the same is uh, your clothing and equipment don't change. Which makes sense. Just as an action, boom, I look like another uh, humanoid race. And that's it. One of the main things for changelings, they have the charisma boost. That's their highest stat. Um, and then you do a plus one to whatever else you want. It gives you flexibility to decide kind of what direction you want to go. Uh, you also, and this is newer for the races, you choose what proficiency, skill proficiencies you want between deception, insight, intimidation, and persuasion. Because that's what you are. You are a changeling. You are all about soft skills. Oh, they're going to say you're a lying liar who lies. <laughs> <laughs> There's persuasion. Hey, I'm not shading them. I think they're cool and would be a lot of fun. Jumping over to the next new race, which is the Kalashtar. But these are people that are, and correct me if I'm wrong, that are basically a spirit has bound themselves to them. A quarry, yes. From like the world of dreams or land that of is dreams. Correct. Hey! Nice. Dalcor. Which the quarry themselves are like psionic entities. Yes. That have now bound to a humanoid, and the humanoid become these Kalashtar, which then also become psionic because of this connection. Yes. So they have things like telepathy as just part of their race, right? Mm-hmm. Which is cool. One ability that actually is kind of cool is this dual mind ability that just lets you get advantage on all wisdom saves. Because you're always of two minds. <laughs> yep, because you have your mind and you have the quarry mind too. Um, you gain resistance to psychic damage, you're plus two to wisdom and plus one to charisma. Uh, also, you don't dream. And you can't be influenced through dreams either, right? Dream spells won't work on you. Yeah, it specifically calls out that you are immune to dream. You can be put to sleep, you just can't have your dreams invaded. The idea is that the quarry that bound to the Kalashtar are rebelling against the evil quarry that are there. They're part of something called the Dreaming Dark. Then one of the other new races are the Shifters, which is basically kind of like a lesser lycanthrope, if I was reading that correctly. Yep. This one actually does get sub-races to it. So you have like Beast Hide, Longtooth, Swift Stride, and Wild Hunt, which kind of signifies the type of creature that you are a shifter of. Okay, I'm going to ask what might be a dumb question. I don't know the answer. Is this like when the Power Rangers have like particular like beast abilities? I did not watch Power Rangers. I, I don't know anything. I'm I, I, I'm genuinely asking, <laughs> is it like that? <laughs> I don't remember the Power Rangers like doing that. It's kind of like if an Animorph could stop halfway. So like, I think it's... Uh, long tooth shifters that have like wolf type features versus swift striders that have cat like features and then they have different benefits based on that yeah long tooth are like tigers hyenas and predators like that swift stride are uh feline type creatures yeah so it's a new way to be a cat person yep. yes we need more methods what if <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about the shifter names they're very creative following on our discussion of creative names Recommendations. Badger. Bear. Cat. <laughs> Fang. <laughs> Grim. <laughs> so if you want to be a shifter, just pick your favorite animal, and that is your name. Or a quality. Grace. There's one that's called Stripe. Wolf. Why do they call you Wolf? Because I'm a wolf. I don't Have know. Have <laughs> you seen my pointed ears and sharp claws? 
Scar is one of them. If you want to play out the line, King. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you could you could be a hyena, you know, <laughs> combo with your shifter too. So always a valid option. But I suppose the last one to get to is the Warforged, which I think is the one that appeals to me the most because robots. Because <laughs> robots. Yeah. Yeah. I did have one of a quick note. This is available in our Darkana and they did make a lot of changes. They really just condensed it all into there is one type of Warforged. That is all. I mean, it's good. Well, they gave more um, like different items that can go with a Warforged later in the items column, which we can talk about. But arm blade. Do they have special gloves? Because they only have three fingers. They have however many fingers you want them to have because they're constructed beings. <laughs> but in the picture, it only has three fingers. <laughs> and two toes. Maybe because that would only needed three fingers. Very specialized type of warforce. I just want one one big finger on each hand. Is that a finger? Is that just like a... <laughs> it's the end of a stump. Just boops someone on the forehead with a giant single finger. Yep. I gotta mainly ask this because it gives like constructed resilience, advantage of saving throws against poison and resistance to poison damage. How can you poison a metal construct? You can't. Rust. Very well. <laughs> but poison and acid, different. Yeah, I know. It's a good question. It seems like they should be immune to poison, right? Because it's immune to disease. And they don't eat food, right? They don't need to eat, drink, or breathe. They don't need to sleep, and magic can't put them to sleep. They still need to do the same rest of eight hours to recover, which is why they put the sentries rest. Tony, can I be Janet from The Good Place? But, like, that whole episode where she just karate chops demons. (laughs) So you want to be a monk warforged? Yeah, that seems pretty cool. I'd be Actually, that's that. really cool. <laughs> I mean, if we're doing an all Warforged one shot, I will be that druid Warforged that can transform into a dinosaur. <laughs> because we can do that in this setting. <laughs> Have I mentioned that I love this setting? Is this happening now? The uh, the all Warforged one shot? I like I just came out of nowhere that Mike just jumps to. So if we're doing, we literally haven't talked about this. Where is this coming from? This. But so if we're doing So when we're doing this. Because so so <laughs> <doing this>. <laughs> you know, that's the real thing that needs to be done. You have to manifest the reality you want to live in. Mike's like, so when we do it. Yeah. Kind of like they're also their integrated protection that they get, which is basically, I want this armor. Give me one hour. This is now my armor forever. <laughs> you cannot remove this armor from me. It is mine. They just bond it to their robot self. Yep. It incorporates into their body for the over the course of one they hour. They weld it on. I mean, it's pretty cool. Also, you get a plus one bonus to AC automatically. Warforged is really cool. But they also do include some uh, goblinoid races like bugbears, goblins, and hobgoblins. Which, this isn't the first book they've been in. No, they were in Volo's Guide to Monsters. But they have new flavor. <laughs> yes. They're not just baddies anymore. <laughs> They're not just monstrous races. They've got an empire. Is that correct, Mike? They were an empire, and then bad stuff happened. Until the accident. (laughs) (laughs) You guys want to get into the first new class that has been introduced to 5e since the Player's Handbook? Wow, Tony, that sounds really interesting. What class is that? The Artificer, which, Nick, since you are playing an Artificer, would you like to discuss this one a little bit? Sure. So- there were two previous versions of this class before this official version through Unearthed Arcana. And um, with Luvin, I, I was playing the original UA version of the Artificer. But I am making the switch. You heard it here first. 
starting with our with arc two of our campaign later in the year. I'm gonna be playing the artificer, the official artificer from Eberron, Rising from the Last War. Specifically, uh, it'll transition while you guys are level six. Yes. You heard it here first. Lubin will reach level six. <laughs> Don't know what happens after that. But... <laughs> All bets are off after that. But what are some things that's uh, different from this for this new build compared to the original version of this artificer? Some proficiency changes, right? So I gain proficiency in shields now, which is convenient. Uh, I might seem like I'm just some like mastermind who planned this when i mentioned in in uh, rumble squad episode 26 hey elaine can you teach me how to use shields but no that was totally coincidental so i have that uh, or i'm going to have that both versions gain thieves tools proficiency but the new artificer has to take tinker's tools plus uh one other tool rather than just a a choice of any tool proficiencies you're trying to rival scrib for tool proficiencies and acquiring them oh don't worry that is an inevitability (laughs) He will, like, clearly sail past Scriv after a while. But there's a reason for that. Is that tool expertise, perhaps? Yep. Um, before, I had to pick and choose which tools, like, I could use tool expertise on. I only had a certain number. Uh, but now, any, I believe, artisan's tool that I have proficiency in, I will automatically have expertise in. It is insane. That is a new level six ability for the new artifice. I'm hearing, if Scriv and Lubin meet, Scriv will be like, Lubin... Teach me how to live. (laughs) (laughs) I would give up a magic item for that feature. And then he can attune to it because he can attune to more things than anybody else. Actually, he'd go, oh, I can make one myself, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's fair, though. (laughs) If you'd like to help me gather the ingredients, I won't say no. (laughs) One downside is I only get two skill proficiency is from the class instead of the original three uh which could have been pretty sad if i like didn't have one i could easily let go of but it actually worked out um i let go of religion because luvin is kind of casual in his in his following of his deity he's not a re- super religious person so he doesn't really yeah, get into orcs it kind of got that right like <laughs> you don't really need two in one party <laughs> it's fine yeah. I mean, he has some philosophy around that, but we'll see if that comes up. (laughs) So this doesn't really impact me because I'm already past this point, but um, you get to choose your specialization at level three instead of level one, which aligns it with most other classes. Spells and magic. So now I'll be able to eventually um, cast up to level five spells um, and I'll have access to all spells on the artificer spell list. The spell list did not lose any spells from the original version. It only gained spells which is amazing. It did lose a spell that you use, actually. It lost Shield of Faith. It did? I missed that. But uh, it does have Sanctuary. And also I gained literal shields, so I'm okay. <laughs> Who needs a Shield of Faith when you have this? You know, knocks on shield. <laughs> clang, clang. <laughs> clang, clang, official business. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. I mean, you can do that now. Mm-hmm. I get a greater number of overall spell slots, too, which is great. I think my spell slots have actually doubled from what I had. Also, you can cast level two spells now instead of just level one. It makes you a true half caster. It does. Instead of a quarter caster? Kind of a weird in-between of a third caster. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. That's accurate. Oh, also the Artificer Specializations, they they get a small list of auto-prepped spells now, kind of like the Cleric Domains. I'm really happy that I'm going to have Healing Word. Yay! 
Healing from a distance is really nice, isn't it? Healing word. We need to defibrillate your friends from a distance. <laughs> Without getting glass shards in their face. <laughs> With a single word of encouragement. You got this, buddy. And they're like, oh. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> That's how I imagine it, at least. <laughs> yeah. For Luvin, yeah. So I gain magical tinkering. So I get to create some uh, minor magical effects on certain objects. There, there's a There's a list of them. Kind of similar to what to some of the stuff you can do with thaumaturgy, right? Thaumaturgy, prestidigitation, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. It's a very Luvin ability. You know, just sort of magically trying things out. Mm-hmm. A pre-recorded message is the one that's, that jumps out to me as something that could be fun. <laughs> Magic voicemail. <laughs> yes. Except you leave a rock somewhere. Can we say that Luvin just leaves like inspirational messages? You know, like people sometimes have inspirational graffiti, but it's like a little pre-recorded message of if you're having a hard day, know that, you know, it's going to get better or something very Luvin. <laughs> the sun will come out tomorrow. I'll occasionally do personalized ones, too. If, if Oryx forging and he's going to be in there a while, they'll be like, you've got this. You've been practicing your whole life. Oh, I thought you were going to say personalized on that like random off chance that somebody named like Jeff picks up the rock and they're really freaked out by it. That would be amazing. <laughs> Let me just write that down. <laughs> Whatever the most common fantasy name is in this world. It'll just Seriously, just roll on in a generator. That is the most common. <laughs> so I, um, I also gain infusions. Which allow me to basically create temporary magical items. I can create a, a certain number, and that limit increases as my artificer level increases. Uh, right now, at level six, I'm able to create a total of three at one time. Oh, also, I lose my wondrous invention trait. Actually, it has come up in the show twice. <laughs> my lantern of revealing and my bag of holding. <laughs> and um, uh, Tony is being very nice and letting me keep those, even uh, even though uh, I will not be able to create items in that way going forward. But there are other ways, of course. Also, to be fair, it felt really dumb for like, hey, you created these magic items. Now that you're new at level, though, all of a sudden, like, you go and you touch them and the magic just goes... <laughs> Powering no, down. It's like a... <laughs> wah, 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 sound. <laughs> <laughs> As is, I'm I'm losing my alchemical satchel and alchemical uh, alchemical formula abilities, but we're we're making it work. Trade off is cantrips. Yeah, cantrips. Love those things. Oh, and also, I lose my mechanical servant that would have allowed me to uh, construct a a large ally. Although I think we were going to make it medium sized but that's kind of beside the point. Now, instead, there is something similar that I'll be able to do with one of my infusions, and I'm excited to. Uh, to explore that. Yeah, it still gives you the option of having that alchemical flavor you're looking for with your magical experimentation, right? It actually describes it in almost the same way that I know Nick was describing one of his, what he was thinking of for his mechanical servant, right? Very much so. Oh, and here's another teaser for you. It could be awkward, right? Switching from a, an Unearthed Arcana uh, class into a full class. But... Um, Something very convenient happened in the plot, right? When it would have made sense to do the switch. So um, stay tuned. This was not planned by me. However, mm -hmm. this made sense. <laughs> was it planned? It just worked well with the way we were going. Yeah. You work with the story as it happens, right? Yes. Mike wouldn't know what that's like. No. So it just happened not. that completely changed the direction for your character ever, you know? No. I might be editing one of those episodes right now. That if you've listened to a recent episode, you know what has happened to Mike's character. <laughs> or his friend. One or the other. So even though I'm losing um, my alchemical formula abilities, I am getting something similar in return. Um, experimental elixirs, um, which 
there's um I think a greater range of what I'll be able to do with them than what was available in in the alchemical formulas. The healing one is technically less potent, but alchemical savant will help me with that in my healing spells anyway. So they they I think really put in the time and effort to balance it. I agree. I think having heard about the the transition overall, it worked out well for you. Part of it is because of the level your character's at. I think if you were a lower level you might feel a greater sense of loss because some of the really great abilities you have came later, right? Like some of the level six stuff. Yeah, that's true. I guess I hopped the train at just the right the right yeah, moment. Yeah, I'm glad it's working out. I will say one of the things that I am kind of glad they kept, um, and this is a brief into the future of Leuven, is the ba- the magic item master, savant, and adept, which basically lets you attune to more at magic items. Yes, I'm really big into that. Even before the Artificer came out, I, I had this thought of, so is there any way I can have more than three attunement slots? So it's like they read my Here's mind. Here's a way that you can get up to six. Yes. <gasps> so many. Rachel's like, so I want many. it. <laughs> what? If in the official version, you also ignore any restrictions. Plus in the level 20 capstone, if you have six, you get a huge boost to your uh, resistances if I... Remember correctly. You get plus one bonus to all saving throws per magic item attuned. And if you are reduced to zero hit points, you can break an attunement to drop back to one. So when you say ignores all, requ- I was going to say all requirements, is that like if a, he picks up a staff that says it has to be to a druid, he can attune to it because it's, he's like, At yeah, level whatever. 14, <laughs> you ignore all class, yeah. race, spell, and level requirements. On attuning to or using a magic item. The only one it doesn't say is alignment. Is alignment uh-huh. restrictions. Mm-hmm. So I just have to throw lots of those at you. What? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's okay. I just don't think about that. It's okay, Tony. <laughs> oh, and the alchemical savant is also pretty cool because it applies not only to uh, healing, which basically gives a, a plus bonus of my um, spellcasting ability modifier, int in this case. Uh, to healing, but it also does it to certain types of magical damage. Yeah, it definitely makes you just better at the things that you want to do as an artificer. So I think overall, it's it's a win. Yeah. And I'll say this too, just in terms of flexibility for artificers overall, I, I feel like it lets the, especially the infusion aspect of it, allows you to build more the exact kind of artificer you want, while the other was a little more prescriptive. Like you would have a mechanical servant, but you don't have to do that. I'm going to do that, but you don't have to. So if you're not interested in anything we've said about the Eberron setting, I'd be surprised. But if that's possible, there still is a lot of great content in the book that I liked where there's really just a first level adventure set in the city of Sharn. So if you just want to like dip your toe in the pool and see what it's like running an Eberron game, they give you a little mini adventure, which I think is pretty great. There aren't a lot of great city adventures beyond, I suppose, Waterdeep. So that's one that has a very different flavor. There's also, and I know this is a Rachel thing, tables for rolling on for everything from like generating NPCs to their motivations to story inspirations and plot complications. So I love tables. And they're overall very dramatic, which is why I was like, Mike, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sharn is the city to be in on Corvair, assuming we're restricting it just to this Continent. I think they do for this book. I think they say there's a land beyond, but eh. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> they have it in the map, but it's not that important. And all the different areas, we've only kind of touched on a couple that Mike has mentioned, but there's adventure hooks for all of these. And they give you this gazetteer little description that gives you a little bit of flavor for like what's going on there. They're very cute. 
It was cute. I liked it. They give a proper voice within the setting. Like, one of the reasons why I like the Five Nations book as an example is that each country has a blurb where the citizens of that country express their opinions of every other country. I actually really like those things. They're really petty, too, uh, which is perfect overall. Like, we don't like them because they aren't as good at magic as we are, just saying. Or we don't like them because they're poor. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is, yeah, they lost their country, so we really don't care about them. That's on dare. On dare, don't play. So really, even if you don't have any familiarity, you could just skim through those and find ones that just pique your interest. If you're like, that sounds like a fun place to set a story. And it gives you enough to get started. And you can look elsewhere if you're looking for a really deep dive. But it's got really good flavor, I think, for each of the different places. There's also maps. Aside from the physical map that you get in the book, there's lots of maps of things like train cars and battle scarred fortresses and there's just like references to like these fallen warforged colossi so there's all sorts of places to take your adventurers as a dm that i thought were fantastic and even if you don't want to be an eberron you could stick this in your setting no problem and there's nothing wrong with that i i thought it has a lot of really great mechanical resources so talking about backgrounds next there is one primary background that's mentioned which is the house agent background i really like this background why is that? Most backgrounds, you have a proficiency and it's based tangentially on like what you could have done as part of that background. House agent is unique in that it gives you a list based on house. And then each house has its own proficiencies that you get. And then the background outlines just benefits you can get from that house. It's very much a whom do you serve sort of flavor. Yeah, yeah it's it's very good. I like it. You're like, I want it. I want it. When do I make my changeling with a house agent background? Well, because there was, um, oh, darn. What is it? It's guild artisan as a as a background, but it always felt kind of lackluster to me. I like house agent a lot more. Well, guild artisan is made to fit into any fantasy world. This is specific to this setting, right? And this way of having the houses be structured. So it makes sense here that it's specific and flavored for a campaign in Eberron. And then it also gives you a role that you can roll for. But it might also just be interesting to pick specifically. So let's say you go for Galanda, who are the hospitality house, and then you decide to pick covert operations. What does covert operations mean for the people who run cast all the member. hotels? <laughs> cast member. Going down through the secret tunnels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that or acquisitions. Maybe you're like this elite real estate broker. Who knows? I think that the background of House Agent works best when you tie it in with a patron, which is something that this book pitches. I don't think this sort of thing has been brought up in other books. Well, we have to clarify that they use the word patron, which is accurate, but also slightly confusing because warlock patrons, it has no relationship to that type of patron at all. This is very much a business patron. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a business patron, but it doesn't need to be a business, which is so good. <laughs> The examples that it gives are just your generic, like, oh, you could work for a dragon-marked house, or you could work for a head of state, or the military. And that gets really interesting. Like, do you want to work for a bunch of zealots? You can do that. You want to work for a crime syndicate? Sure. Do you want to work for a newspaper? Here are the rules for it. And then it gives you 
membership credentials. It gives you benefits. It gives you if you wanted to give your PC a career. Yeah. Do they Here's do your 401k, 401k matching? Yep. Yeah. Do they do dental? Uh, you know, what kind of benefits? Pay, like package yeah, do they cover talking? that aforementioned healing that we talked Compensation, about? Compensation, <laughs> advancement, benefits, yeah. everything Healthcare you could want. is really high up there for adventurers. They live a dangerous <laughs> lifestyle. Life insurance? <laughs> Life insurance? Yep. Ooh, that's, that's a high cost there, though. But kind of to what your point is, it provides more structure to just not, you're not just doing jobs, you're moving forward within some sort of faction, I guess, or group. Yeah, if I don't know if you read the Ravnica supplement that Wizards put out. Uh, this is similar in that it provides you adventures, contacts, and the levels of advancement that you might get in a faction. And this just adapts it for Eberron. And it does this for your whole group. So this is for your, for your party, is I think what the proposal is, that you're all an adventuring party that works for X corporation. Which is perfect for session zero. Yeah. You sit down and you say, okay, guys, what's our group patron? What is the mission that we're going to? And then that can define what kind of game you're running. I like the idea you're just a group of fantasy journalists. (laughs) (laughs) You could join the university. Fantasy researchers. Fantasy researchers, Indiana Jones. I mean, Morgrave University is the Indiana Jones university. Everyone there is out to do an adventure in Zendrick. And then one final thing that they provide is uh, roles specifically for your group patron. So if you were to have a newspaper, let's say there's the face, the person who's going to be taking the interviews, you have the muscle that's going to have to make sure that your reporters can get the job done and so on and so forth which I think is nice in case you're having trouble delineating what your role as a PC would be in this group. So you're assigning job titles. <laughs> yes, you're assigning job titles along with advancement and everything. Yeah, else. um I would like to, you know, be promoted to a level 2 muscle. I feel like my work has really earned <laughs> a promotion. I mean, I'm doing the work of a level 3 muscle, but I'm only getting paid as level 1. Like I'm go- I'm going to need some more compensation. Role playing some one-on-ones would be really good with your DMs. <laughs> Yeah, your performance reviews. <laughs> I lost three fingers last week. Come on. <laughs> but I did take out this many crazy cultists. Your insurance only covers two fingers. I'm sorry. <laughs> the other one's going to have to be a prosthetic. That's why you're a Warforged. <laughs> Final two things to kind of talk about in the book are the new monsters and NPCs that they introduce. So uh, the biggest thing is Tony opened the book, squealed about the map, and then squealed again when he saw that they have high level, you know, NPCs. Like, with CRs of, like, 28, right? The highest one I saw was a CR 28, yes. They have some CR, like, 24s and 26s, which I remember I mentioned to Mike, and he's like, there shouldn't be anything that strong. Why are there things there that strong? There shouldn't be. <laughs> I saw they gave some Dalkir names, and I was uh, I was concerned. You're like, they have names now? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this comes from this time after the war, right? So some creatures and forces have just increased their power. Over the years since then. I think the thing that I was drawn to was the living spells, not just because they're cute, but mostly because they're super cute. <laughs> That's what I was like going, ooh, earlier, because <laughs> I saw the picture. I was like, oh. Wait, how can you find living cloud kill cute? Have you seen it? It's like a little tiny. It's a floating war crime. Oh, what are you talking it's about? It's like a little pet. <laughs> it's a large construct. <laughs> My favorite is the living burning hands. It looks like, ah, fire hands. (laughs) I would like one as a pet. Put it on a little leash. (laughs) I was about to say, what kind of leash would you need to put it on? Because that would burn very quick. Okay. Yeah. 
it really has it all for NPCs because you have the living spells and then you turn the next page and it's like Lord of Blades. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> he's pretty cool. Looking. Yeah, he's like a warforged warlord. He has spikes and blades everywhere. I like it. He kind of looks like a fighting game character. I'm pretty sure in the game he's in, he will just spin as one of his attack moves. And then there's the most important thing, which came up the first time I looked at the 3.5 books where I was like, Mike, why is there a picture of halflings riding on dinosaurs? Yes. <laughs> and he's like, ah, yes, let me tell you the tale of the Talenta halflings. So yes, there are dinosaurs in this book and you can ride them. If that doesn't sell you, I don't know what will. Rachel, now 100% sold. <laughs> I'm on board for the living living spells and the dinosaurs. <laughs> Great options. And in general, the NPCs are interesting and there's a lot of different CRs and there's lots of fiends, which is Tony's, you know, favorite. Rakshasa are big in this setting. It definitely seems like it, but they all serve the Delki or something. Yeah, Rachel's been asking for a Rakshasa for like ever. I definitely don't at some point have that planned at all for Rumble Squad. Don't worry. I hope so. When you least expect it, expect it. <laughs> so basically start shaking everybody's hand. I was about to say, I'm pretty sure you're going to do that anyways, for reasons, but. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You shake his hand. It's strangely, like, furry for some reason. And also, um, you're feeling like the back of his thumb. Yeah. Perfectly normal. <laughs> Everyday conversations. May I shake your hand for reasons? <laughs> <laughs> I've never asked that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I believe you've asked it multiple times. I didn't in my ask campaign. it. I asked somebody else to shake their hand for reasons. That's true. <laughs> Please shake their hands for reasons. So we already talked about the Artificer, which has, you know, magic items and built-in item crafting, but there are more magic items in the book and specific things for crafting, like dragon shards, which is just like a crystal imbued with magical energy to create more magical items, right? Yeah. Well, then the other one I know that I'm slightly intrigued by, but seems mean, are the uh, symbiotic items, like living armor. Yeah, they really take this whole magic integration to heart. Oh, there's also um, a tentacle whip that literally, like, imbues itself into your arm. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. Okay, I'm on board with it. <laughs> if, you're, if you're really into Cthulhu. <laughs> you can get artificial lungs. Yeah, you get, like, prosthetics, too, right? That's sort yep. of a, an interesting thing. The aforementioned arm blade. <laughs> well, I also gotta say, the one that slightly uh, intrigued me was the arcane propulsion arm. It's a rocket fist. <laughs> so when am I getting one of those? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> As soon as you cut off your hand, man. Like. They're just like, if you get one, everyone gets one. Yeah. <laughs> you have to bring enough arcane propulsion arms for the whole class, yeah. okay? Fine. Yeah. Get crafting moving. Yeah, and there are some like fun sort of just flavored items, like a cleansing stone, which just lets that you- That is like, my favorite one. That, why is that your favorite one? <laughs> it's just so, so simple and kind of dumb. You just, you touch it and you remove dirt. Off yourself. It also knows that some areas have them in like public places, so I think they're like those public hand sanitizer dispensers, <laughs> but but magic. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a foot in it's a foot in diameter, so it makes sense that you would just leave it there. All you do is um, you put it on the ground underneath the floor mat, and when people go to step on it, their shoes are cleaned, and there's no mud being tracked in the house. Ooh, that's pretty cool. I don't totally have plans for this, don't worry. You take magic and bring it into the normal world and see what people do with it. Roombas. That's what people do with it. Magic Roombas. <laughs> I mean, that's Roombas are basically yeah. motorized cleansing stones. Yeah, yeah. Basi when they work right, yeah. <laughs>
I was about to say, the final magic item type that I kind of wanted to mention also was the Eldritch Machines, which are just massive constructs that use magic to like help to regulate weather, to build things. Put a soul in a warforged. Yeah. You know, the usual. <laughs> help to create a, a protective barrier from the evil demonic forces that threaten to inhabit the world. You know, it's simple just things. Those. Mm-hmm. Super dramatic. Love this setting. Yeah, I'm pretty into it now. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, based on the discussion and what I've flipped through and, you know, seen of the book, I think it seems pretty cool. I definitely like some of the creatures and everything. I like the idea that it has a lot of the story hooks as well. Even if they're very specific, you can always, like, use them for inspiration for, you know, other settings and things. Also, you know, side note, I'm running a bunch of Numenera games, and this sounds like it could be used... Because it is, it's a similar, almost like in the same idea and vein that like magic and technology are similar and unknown or whatever. So it, I feel like it could be used maybe in other settings. And I like it. You're like other systems too, as, as kind of an inspiration and source book, because it is not just like a campaign. It's a general source book for everything this setting has to offer at a high level with some detail. I know Mike has pointed out, but I want more. But this is like the starting point. <laughs> yeah. I did want to add, I looked up reviews for this on Amazon because I was curious what people were saying. And I looked at the negative reviews and most of them were complaints about Amazon shipping. Like <laughs> Amazon shipped it and it was slow or Amazon shipped it without any bubble wrap and the corners got slightly bent. So overall, the consensus is people like the book who have ordered it. But the Amazon shipping, not so good. But Amazon, do better. <laughs> I think it was the t- So if you are going to buy it, I would buy it from your friendly local game store, not just because it's the right thing to do for them, but also Amazon. They might disappoint you with their shipping. I think as someone who purchased the book, having just the exposure to Eberron through talking to Mike and reading those books, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like in 5e or what they would be bringing that was new. And I think it's just a nice, concise guide to get you started. If you are already extremely experienced with the setting and have all was it 15 books for 3.5 15 if you have all 15 it might be slightly less valuable to you but it does come with a map it's pretty i attest to that i can't show you through podcast form but it's pretty plus the artificer for 5e yeah and it gives you the final artificer that's true so if you're already using a lot of the art arcana that relates to this and you're not looking to make a purchase i'm not gonna say your world will be empty and devoid of purpose without it but so, Rachel, you're like, yeah. 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 You're sold. Yeah, I'm on board it. I got to say, like, I remember looking at it and I was kind of like, meh, with the book. But having read through it, I think it's it, it it's a great inspirational tool, even if you're not using the setting itself. What we're hearing is Mike is going to get what he truly desires, which is for more Eberron content to be integrated into the podcast world. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say giant mechs that you control. No, no giant mechs. That, that, that doesn't not... work for Scriv, but Michael, the player, does. <laughs> Michael, the player, says, yes, please, I will take two. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, would you say also, having now heard more about the book, what what would your takeaway be? Yes, please. I want I want more Eberron content. This this is a fun sounding setting. I'm here for it. Awesome. Well, I think that that wraps up our discussion. Thank you, Mike and Nick, for uh, joining us on this discussion of Eberron rising from the last war. Thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure to talk about a setting that I feel very strongly about.